0: I invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 1. It's the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. If you're using the Pew Bibles, I believe our reading this morning will be found on page 836. Our sermon text this morning is Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. But if you will indulge me, I'll read beginning in verse 1 through our sermon text to establish a bit of the context of our text. I, I'm reading from the New American Standard Version, so if there's some variations from what you're reading, that would that would explain uh, those variations. This is the Word of God, Mark chapter one, beginning in verse one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and wild honey. He was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Immediately, the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Please pray with me. Lord, our God, you have given us your word. You have breathed it out by your spirit for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, so that your people might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We ask now that you would, by your word, equip us for every good work. We pray that you would convict us of sin, leading us to repentance, that you would show us the glories of Christ, strengthening our faith in him, that you would glorify yourself that you would build your kingdom, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. There is an event which happens every four years, an event which I'm sure you're probably all familiar with. In this event, athletes from countries around the world, top athletes meet at a a predetermined location. And they compete against one another for prizes, medals. They compete to see who is the best in the world. Well, I am, of course, talking about the Olympic Games. Uh, If you're anything like me, you probably take note of those games when they occur every four years. You might not watch the whole thing, but uh, perhaps every now and then you... (coughs) Check the Internet to see which country is leading in medals or if there's a particular sport which you're fond of. You maybe tune in to see how the American team is doing. We we love things like that. We love the Olympic Games. I wonder if any of you have ever considered what it takes for those athletes to make it to the Games, what they undergo. The Olympic athletes, as I was looking this up, found out, have to have really maybe two basic categories that they fulfill. One, they must be qualified to participate in the games. They have to meet certain age requirements. They primarily have to be a citizen of the country in which they're going to represent. They have to meet certain qualifications, but Olympic athletes as I'm sure you have noticed must be very very prepared to compete. Uh I played a lot of sports in high school, but I can tell you right now, I am nowhere near prepared to be an Olympic athlete. Olympic athletes are are prepared to the highest degree so that they can adequately represent their country, their teams, in the games in which they will compete. Well, what does that have to do with our text? See, if, if we want, if we need athletes in the Olympic Games be adequately qualified and adequately prepared to represent our country in in sports, really, things which will pass away. How much more do we need someone who is qualified and prepared to represent us before God Almighty? We need a qualified and prepared Savior, don't we? I submit to you that that is what this passage in Mark chapter 1, teaches us. It teaches us that Jesus is the qualified and prepared Savior. Jesus here in these five verses is demonstrated as the only one qualified and prepared to be the Christ of God, the Savior of the church. He is demonstrated as the only one qualified and prepared to be the Christ of God, your Savior. He is indeed your Savior. And so I seek to show to you this morning these two things about the Lord Jesus Christ. One, that He is demonstrated as the only qualified Savior. We'll see that in verses 9 through 11. And two, that Christ is demonstrated as the only prepared Savior. We will see that in verses 12 and 13. Two headings. Christ qualified, Christ prepared. So, now look with me to our text this morning in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. We read there this statement, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Uh, In those days, Mark is, of course, drawing your attention back to those first eight verses When he spoke about the ministry of John the Baptist, Mark says to you, in those days, at the height of John the Baptist's ministry, in those days when the spiritual, when the religious focus of Israel was on John the Baptist, when people were coming from all over the countryside, from Judea, from Jerusalem, when they were coming to repent of their sins and be baptized by John, in those days, a figure appeared to the people Of Israel. The man, Jesus Christ. Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, an unknown man at this point, really. The spiritual focus is all on John, and and Christ appears seemingly out of nowhere here in Mark's Gospel. He appears from a small town in kind of a backward location, Nazareth of Galilee, a place where no one was expecting great things to come. From. Jesus comes from Nazareth in Galilee, and what happens? Does Jesus come from Nazareth in Galilee with great aplomb? Are there trumpets sounding, here is your Messiah, here is the Christ of God? No, He comes from Nazareth in Galilee, and He was baptized by John in the Jordan. The focus of Mark's gospel has shifted from John to Jesus. And then we see his baptism here. And if you're anything like me, I'm sure one of the first questions that pops into your head, knowing the context of this, is why is Jesus being baptized? After all, we just read here in verse 4 that John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And you assuredly know that the Lord Jesus Christ, was sinless. It's like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. And so why then is Jesus being baptized by John in Jordan? He has nothing that he needs to repent of. He needs no forgiveness. But I submit to you that this baptism is the first of three qualifications concerning Jesus that Mark sets forth for us. Jesus is Qualified as the Savior because of his baptism. Why is that? For two reasons. First, because this baptism demonstrates that Jesus is the sinless Savior. What did Jesus say to John in in Matthew? Matthew gives us a, a little bit. Uh, more of a full picture of this baptism of Jesus. John says, "I, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And what is Christ's response to him? It is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is qualified as our Savior because he is the one who fulfills all righteousness. He and he alone is the one who fully, completely, totally kept the law of God who did all that he was required to do. The Lord Jesus Christ, here in his baptism, is fulfilling righteousness, doing everything which the Father wants him to do as the Savior of the elect. Fulfilling righteousness, demonstrating himself as the one who delights to do the Father's will, who only does the Father's will, and who does it completely and totally. The sinless Savior. This baptism also shows us Christ is our sinless Savior. He's the sinless Savior who identifies with His people. It's Christ in coming to the waters of baptism. is fulfilling righteousness. And He is essentially saying in this baptism, I will be the one who takes away the sins of my people. These people need to repent of their sins, Yes. I have come to identify with them, to show that I am really, truly a man, that I am an Israelite above all Israelites, and that I am the one who can actually represent my people before God Almighty. It's an interesting parallel here that Christ's culmination of his mission, what what he says is, The end goal of his mission in Mark chapter 10 is to give his life as a ransom for many. To be the atoning sacrifice. Leviticus chapter 16. We're told of certain ceremonial washings which the high priests did before they represented the people before God on the great day of atonement. The high priests would wash themselves ceremonially. Before they represented their people. Christ here does something very similar. He is ceremonially cleansed, baptized, though he has nothing to repent of. He enters the waters of baptism to show that he will represent his people before God as the great high priest who will present to God the atoning sacrifice on behalf of his people. So this verse here shows us that Christ is qualified as our Savior. He's qualified by His baptism in showing that He is the one worthy of being a Savior. Indeed, the only one, and He is the one who will represent His people. Qualified by baptism. And yet, that is not the only qualification that Mark gives us in these verses, is it? It's merely one of three. Look with me to verse 10. We read that uh, after Christ was baptized by John in the Jordan, immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. Uh, Christ was qualified or is qualified. His qualification is demonstrated by his baptism. His qualification is also demonstrated by the fact that he is the one anointed by the Holy Spirit. Christ is the one who has the Spirit wished out without measure. He's the one who gives the Spirit without measure. Here in verse 10, we see Christ's qualification demonstrated by being anointed by the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah chapter 42, in one of those uh, great servant songs which speak of the Lord Jesus, get there. We read Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The Lord Jesus Christ in his baptism or after his baptism was anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit came upon him and in the power of the Spirit, Christ undertook all of his earthly ministry. Uh, you, I'm sure, remember in the Old Testament that Israel was given leaders in, in three different offices, right? Israel was given uh, prophets, those who would proclaim the word of God, expound the word of God to the people of Israel. And the people of Israel were given priests, those who would represent the people before God, those who would offer the sacrifices on behalf of the people. And the people of Israel were given kings, those who were to shepherd the people of Israel, even as as God shepherded his people. The Lord Jesus Christ is one who has all three of those offices. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism speaks about this. It asks what offices Christ executed as our Redeemer. Christ as our Redeemer executes the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king in his estates of humiliation and exaltation. Christ is our great prophet priest, and king. He is the one who has spoken to us and revealed the Father to us, the one who gave up his life and atoning sacrifice and the one who rules and reigns over us. All three of those offices in the Old Testament were set apart by an action. They were anointed. They had oil applied to their head and that showed to the people, these men are set apart to this particular office. So you must take heed must pay attention to what they say, what they do. These are the people who are leading you, guiding you, ideally towards the proper and right worship of God, toward being a people set apart to Him. Here in the Holy Spirit, descending upon Christ like a dove, Christ is anointed with an oil far better than any of the oil that was used upon the people of the Old Testament who were set apart to office. Christ here is anointed by the Spirit of God. A visible sign, a demonstration that he and he alone is set apart to fulfill the great offices which he bears. This was a very public, very open pronouncement of the fact that Christ uh, has those three offices. If you look to the text, we read there that As Christ came up out of the water, as he was walking away from the water, he saw the heavens opening. If you're using the English Standard Version, I think it gives a a little bit better of a translation of this. It says the heavens were uh, torn open, I believe. And that's really a proper understanding of this word. The heavens are are torn, they're rent. The same word is used later in Mark's Gospel for the tearing of the curtain. Heavens are torn open. This is a great sign. Who but God alone could could rend the heavens? This is a public pronouncement by God. And the Spirit descends as a dove, demonstrating to all who were there, who saw this event happen, that Christ was anointed. Christ is qualified. and That's demonstrated by His baptism. His sinlessness, his identification with his people. Christ is qualified, and that's demonstrated by the fact that he is anointed by the Holy Spirit, that he has the Spirit without measure, that God has publicly shown that Christ is the anointed one. But Mark does not stop there. He tells us what happened next. Look at verse 11. After the heavens are rent open and the Spirit descends on Christ, the a dove, a voice came out of the heavens and said, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. Christ's qualification is demonstrated by his baptism and demonstrated by his anointing. Christ's qualification is demonstrated by this public proclamation of God the Father. This voice comes out of heaven. This is obviously the voice of God the Father. This is the Lord God Almighty speaking, the first person of the Trinity. This is the same God who will later, on the Mount of Transfiguration, speak again to public witnesses, proclaiming Christ to be his beloved one, the one they should listen to. Here, the Father makes a declaration, a declaration of complete love, of complete uh, approval, and of complete acceptance of Christ as the Savior. The Father says three things. First, He says, You are my beloved. Here, the Father makes a public declaration that this one, this Jesus Christ who has come from Nazareth in Galilee, is the beloved of the Father. That God delights and loves this man. This is the one who has all of the Father's affection. Who has had fellowship with the Father for all eternity. The beloved of the Father. He says, you are my beloved son. The father publicly declares that this Jesus of Nazareth is not a mere man. He's not some random person from Nazareth in Galilee. As might have been supposed by some, this is the Son of God, the eternally begotten one. This Jesus of Nazareth is God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, who has taken on a human nature of a, of a true body and a, a reasonable soul, who has been become Emmanuel, God with us, who walks among his people, who is the fulfillment of God's great promise to His people throughout time. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell among you. God now dwells among men. Jesus is the beloved Son of God. And He is the one who has all of the Father's favor and pleasure. For the Father says, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now this statement, in whom I am well pleased, it, maybe you'd think, Well, God is well pleased in Christ because he's fulfilled all righteousness. Maybe, No, this statement by the father indicates that the father has been well pleased in Christ for all eternity. This isn't something which just happened at the baptism. This is the father's pleasure being in Christ from eternity past to eternity future. The one in whom the father delights. Now, if you were an Israelite standing by the Jordan River that day in the wilderness and you heard this declaration, I'm sure it probably would have caused you to think, where have I heard something like this before? And you'd probably remember Psalm chapter 2, wouldn't you? One of those great messianic psalms where Jehovah says to his anointed one, you are my son, Today you are begotten ask of me I will give you the nations as your inheritance. This declaration by the Father is a declaration of his of his love of his relationship with his son of his great favor and pleasure towards the son. It's also a declaration that this Jesus this is the anointed of God, prophesied in the Old Testament, the one who would have the nations as his inheritance. The one who the Lord God would enthrone upon Zion's holy hill. That is who this Jesus is. This Jesus is demonstrated in these three verses as completely and totally qualified to be the Savior of God's people. He's demonstrated by his baptism and fulfilling righteousness of his anointing by the Spirit without measure, also in fulfillment of a Messianic prophecy and of his qualification of being demonstrated by the Father's proclamation. Christ is demonstrated as the qualified Savior. What do we do with this information? Say, well, good. He's qualified. Well, first I would submit to you that This should cause us primarily, first and foremost, to express great joy and hope. See, we have a Savior unlike any other possible Savior that could exist. Indeed, He is the only Savior. And that should cause us to rejoice and have great joy. He is our great High Priest The one who is like us in every respect, yet without sin, who represents us perfectly before the Father. He's the one who has given us the Holy Spirit. He's the one who had the Spirit without measure and gives the Spirit without measure. This ought to cause us to rejoice and have great joy. And so, my friends, I encourage you. I exhort you. In those times in your life when you maybe don't feel as much joy as you could when you're down, when you question the, the miseries of life, the trials that you're undergoing, remember, the Lord Jesus Christ represents you. That He has identified Himself with you in His baptism. That He has been anointed. And so He really does truly hold that office of great high priest before God and the office of King Ruling and reigning over you and protecting you from your enemies. Remember also that the Father proclaimed that he is the Messiah. And the one in whom the Father was well pleased. Remember those things and meditate on those things. Let those things stir your heart to joy. Even in the midst of trial. Of of dire circumstances even. Let those things be a source of hope. You have a Savior who is completely and totally qualified to be your Savior. I would also exhort you to remember these things about Christ. When you come across those who claim to be Christian and yet deny these very basic truths about the Lord Jesus Christ. I was distressed to read in uh, the most recent Ligonier uh, theology survey that, 30% of people who claim to be evangelical Christians deny the divinity of Christ. 30%. That is appalling. That is just an indication of how little the Scripture is being taught in in churches that they proclaim to be evangelical or, or how many people claim one thing and yet are still lost in in their sin without light because they think that Christ was just a good teacher instead of being the son of God this text demonstrates to us it should demonstrate to all men Christ is really truly indeed divine he did not become the son of God in his baptism he already was the beloved son he did not become the father was not well pleased in him after his baptism the father was already well pleased with him at his baptism, we must stand against these falsehoods, which have even begun to creep into the churches, those which call themselves evangelical. We must stand against them. We must present the truth to those who we come across who maybe hold to these falsehoods. And we can do that here from just these three verses even. So the Scripture as a whole teaches this great and glorious truth that Christ is God in the flesh, he has the names of God, that he has the attributes of God, that he does the works of God and receives the worship of God. Yet these three verses are a good starting point to demonstrate to those people who deny the divinity of Christ that he is, in fact, God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh because otherwise he would not be our qualified Savior. He is our qualified Savior. He is indeed God. That Christ is our qualified Savior. is not the only thing that this text teaches us. Just as an Olympic athlete or must be qualified, you must also be prepared. Many of us are qualified, I suppose, to uh, try to enter the Olympics, and yet perhaps not many of us are prepared to go into the Olympics. Christ was qualified, but if he was not prepared, uh, perhaps we would not have a complete saviour. But he was prepared. And that is what the next two verses, verses 12 and 13, show us this morning. That Christ is not only qualified, he is also prepared. We read in verse 12 that immediately the Spirit impelled him, that is Jesus, to go out in the wilderness. Immediately is one of Mark's favorite words. Mark is a very fast-paced gospel. If you've read through it, you know it's short, you know it's just kind of you know, bullet after bullet after bullet. Mark really, really wants to get to the crux of the matter. He wants to get to the atoning sacrifice of Christ. So he uses this word immediately, over and over and over again to kind of spur along the narrative. Well, here he uses the word immediately again. Uh, He used the word immediately in verse 10, but this immediately indicates to us not only Mark's haste in getting toward you know, the the big climax of his gospel. It also indicates to us the Spirit's purpose in the life of Christ here at this point. See, immediately the Spirit impelled Christ to go into the wilderness. There was no break for the Lord Jesus. After he had come up out of the water, he had left the river, and the heavens had been torn open, and the Father had made this proclamation of him. There was no time for Christ to sit back and bask in in the glory of the Father's proclamation. He didn't get to kick back in a recliner and say, you see everyone, I'm I'm the Father's beloved Son, He's well pleased in me. No, it it was on to the next thing. The Spirit who had just anointed Christ now says to Him, it's time to keep going. No time to waste. The Father's will must be accomplished. You must be about your Father's business. And so the Spirit impels him to go to the wilderness. Now, of course, you might be thinking, well, wait, didn't we read that John the Baptist was baptizing in the wilderness? He was. So when the Spirit impels Christ to go out into the wilderness, it's telling us that he was really out in the wilderness. See, it wasn't like a Lord Jesus stepped out of the suburbs into some neighborhood park and he was in the wilderness. No, Christ was in the very heart of the wilderness. Christ now has been sent out alone. No friends to rely on. No John the Baptist to talk to, to have companionship with. Lord Jesus is now completely and totally Isolated from all human contact. How does this prepare Christ? This is Christ fully and completely relying upon the Spirit. See, the Lord Jesus Christ was fully man, even as He was fully God. And in His humanity, He relied upon the Holy Spirit who had anointed Him completely. So here he follows the spirits driving into the wilderness and he relies upon the spirit, trusting fully in his God and father that he will go out into the wilderness and no harm will befall him. Here also he is driven out in the wilderness for a period of time which many scholars have seems kind of correlates to the wilderness sojourns of Israel and where Israel failed this the true Israel Lord Jesus Christ does not he is prepared out in the wilderness prepared not only by isolation he is also prepared by overcoming temptation completely if you look with me at verse 13 after he's been impelled to go out into the wilderness we read he was in the wilderness Forty days being tempted by Satan. Herein is God's purpose for him to be alone, no human contact, no man to rely on, only the Spirit of God. And as he relies upon the Spirit of God, the great enemy comes against him. The great enemy of God and God's people, the one who cannot do anything unless God permits it, Know that from the testimony of Scripture, primarily in the book of Job. And yet, the great enemy who really and truly does hate God with everything in him, hate the people of God with everything in him, and seek with all he has to destroy and disrupt all of God's purposes, if he could. See, the devil is a bound strong man, to use the scriptural language And yet he really is very and truly a a great and dire enemy. We need not be afraid of the devil. He is God's devil, as it were. He can do nothing outside of, of God's sovereign ordaining, but he really is wicked and evil. He really does hate the people of God. He really does devise and scheme any way he possibly can to trip up the people of God and draw them away from God if he could. He's a powerful enemy, one which we ought not take lightly. And yet, as this text tells us, he is completely vanquished by the Lord Jesus. We see that Christ was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Forty days language here is not that this temptation was sporadic and, you know, happened every Saturday for, you know, a month. No, this is 40 days of complete isolation in the wilderness. Forty days of ceaseless temptation in the wilderness. Christ is not getting a break during these 40 days. Satan comes against him again and again and again for 40 days. Think about that, if you will. Most of us can't stand up to temptation for four minutes, let alone 40 days. Yet here is this Lord Jesus Christ, who not only withstands the temptation for 40 days, but, like a master fencer, disarms his opponent at every turn during that temptation. Again, Matthew gives us a little bit more of a, of a full picture of the temptation. You know that the devil tempted Christ to turn stones into bread and to jump off the temple to receive worship from men and then ultimately to worship the devil so that he could receive all the nations. And Christ resisted those temptations. But Mark's point here is not to uh, give us every detail of the temptation of Christ, but to show us the intensity of this temptation, to show us Christ's preparation for 40 whole Days, The Lord Jesus Christ was tempted by Satan and for 40 whole days resisted temptation completely and utterly defeating his enemy, the enemy of his people. He did this in the wilderness. He did this while he was in the wilderness with the wild beasts. This, again, is language from the prophets. You read the prophets. That's one of the curses. That's mentioned to the people of Israel time and time again. If they continue to disobey the Lord, they will go into exile and the wild beasts will inhabit the land. The wild beasts are inhabiting the land and yet, though there is real true danger for Christ because of wild beasts. At the same time, it shows here that Christ overcoming the devil in the wilderness where Adam could not overcome the devil in the garden. Christ is beginning to reverse the curses. Wild beasts are are no longer a detriment, a scourge. Now Christ is in the wilderness with the wild beasts. And after his temptation with Satan, or by Satan, excuse me, the angels came and ministered to Christ. It was really and truly very grueling for Christ to resist temptation. Now we can all uh, confess together, I'm sure, that we believe. Christ's complete and total sinlessness, we believe that Christ was completely and totally unable to sin. He was his God. God cannot sin. God cannot do something so completely contrary to his nature. And yet, even though Christ was uh, was impeccable, unable to sin, yet this is real, true temptation. Because this is temptation to uh, the fullest measure. Right? We are tempted oftentimes, and then you know, after just a little bit of pushing, a little bit of temptation, we fall to temptation. This is the same temptation over and over again, a a constant pushing, a a constant uh, escalation of the temptation. And yet Christ resisted and it did wear on Him. It wore Him out. The angels, after Christ resisted this temptation, came and ministered to Him. The Father who was well-pleased with His beloved Son, sent the holy angels of God to Christ to demonstrate to Him once again that He had all of the Father's love and favor, that He had done His work well, that He was well and truly prepared. The angels were sent to Him to minister to Him, to serve Him so that He might be refreshed and prepared to continue the great work which He had been called to do. So then I hope you see from these two verses the preparation of Christ. Completely isolated, and set apart from man so he would have no help from men, so that he would rely fully upon the Spirit of God. And then relying upon the Spirit of God would completely and totally, fully resist the temptations of the devil, defeat his opponent, demonstrating himself once again as sinless, wholly harmless and undefiled, perfect, Savior, which you need. That is what Christ is demonstrated as in, in these two verses. I think there's another error uh, that's floating around out there uh, in churches these days, which, which must be confronted actually from this text, uh, from the temptation of Christ specifically. You see, there's a, a modern idea floating around that well, our temptations to sin, especially certain uh, inclinations to sin, which should become very popular in this day and age, they're not really sins. These, these internal temptations and inclinations aren't really sin. And they say, well, Jesus was tempted and that's why our temptations can't actually be sin. There's a big difference between the temptation of Jesus and our own temptation. What is that difference? Our temptations, temptations excuse me, come from within. It is when our own sinful desires are stirred up that we are tempted and we go after sin. Christ had no internal sinful desires. All of the temptations which came against Christ were external, coming from the devil. And therefore, you cannot compare your temptations with the temptations of Christ. Christ was tempted and yet completely sinless. That is true. You, when you are tempted, are not completely sinless because those temptations come from the remnant of that guilt and corruption of your nature which you got from Father Adam. So I would warn you that if you struggle with sins and you seek to comfort yourself by saying, well, Christ was tempted, so my temptations aren't that bad. You must stop. Not try to comfort yourself by saying Christ was tempted and so temptation cannot be wrong. No. You must say Christ was tempted by the devil. He did not succumb. I am tempted by my own flesh and I fall daily. And you must take that to heart and repent of your sin. And you must repent of your sinful inclinations. You must repent of the inherited guilt which you have. Christ resisting temptation to the fullest measure such as He did here ought to lead you to repentance. And so I exhort you, dear Christians, take that to heart. Repent of your sins. We also see, though, from this temptation of Christ something which ought to be comforting You You must not comfort yourself by saying Christ was tempted, so my temptations are not bad. But you should comfort yourself by saying Christ is a suitable high priest who was tempted just like we are. He was tempted. He underwent temptation. He can sympathize with you because of that. You do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with you. No, you have the one who was tempted for 40 days. He can't resist it. He does sympathize with you. When you are being tempted, you can go to God and say, help me. Send deliverance for me. I'm being tempted. And your great high priest does not shun you and say, you're being tempted again. I can't believe you. He says, I will make a way of escape for you. For I am the great high priest who loves you and who sympathizes with you, who sees all of your many needs and who will represent you. I am your great high priest. Take comfort in that, dear saints. Take great comfort in that. Take comfort in the fact that when you fall to temptation that great high priest awaits you even then as well. And that through him you may boldly approach the throne of grace to repent of your sins. When you sin, you need not hide, need not conceal yourself like Adam and Eve did. No, because of your great high priest who was tempted for you, you may go boldly The Lord God, confessing your sins, repenting of them, and receiving full pardon. Comfort you with those words and encourage you. Not wait to repent of your sins, but when you sin, swiftly flee to Christ, who is your great high priest. And this too, this great truth as well, ought to cause us to sing praise and to have great joy. We ought to meditate on this and think, oh, the great love of Christ. The great love of Christ that he God himself should condescend to come to earth and be tempted by one of his own creatures. What great humility that the God of of all of the earth, the one through whom all things were made, allowed himself to be tempted by a creature, and a creature who was in rebellion. Christ could have at any moment and rightly so just destroyed the devil and said, be gone, be no more. How dare you, a mere creature, come against me, the holy God? Yet he did not. He underwent that temptation. Well, the great humility of Christ, the great love of Christ for you, that he would do such a thing, becoming man and undergoing temptation, take that to heart as well, and let that stir you to great love for the Lord Jesus. Great hope, and great joy in him. Well, I hope that you see from these five verses, Christ, the Lord Jesus, demonstrated as qualified. And prepared. We see or we saw in those first three verses. That he meets those qualifications. Which are necessary for the Savior to have. That he was baptized to demonstrate his work on our behalf to fulfill all righteousness. That he was anointed by the Spirit of God. To be the great prophet, priest and king of God's people. That he was confirmed as the anointed, as the Christ of God by the Father's proclamation. And we see also his preparation for his great work, that he underwent this great trial and temptation in the wilderness, and that he conquered it fully and completely. Christ Jesus is the only one who ever was, and is, and will be qualified and prepare to be the Redeemer of God's elect. For those of you who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, rejoice. Take great joy in the Lord of your salvation. Rejoice that you have such a Savior qualified and prepared. And if any of you out there do not have Him as your Savior, I hope that you see here He is qualified to be your Savior as well prepare to be your Savior as well. Not hesitate to come to Christ. Do Not hesitate to call upon Him and ask Him to be your Savior, to forgive you of your sins, to save you from the wrath of God, from the sin which so besets you, from the punishment which you deserve. Trust Him. Repent of your sins. Rely upon Him and Him alone. Do this. Trust in Christ. Because He is the qualified and prepared Savior. Let us pray. Our Lord and God, we marvel at the great grace of which you have shown to us, that though we were your enemies, though we were dead in trespasses and sins, though we were by nature children of wrath, yet you loved the world and sent your only begotten Son to be the propitiation for the sins of your people. Oh, we marvel, Lord Jesus, that you condescended to take a human nature to yourself, to be 100% man and to suffer on our behalf we thank you Lord Jesus that you identified yourself with us that you fulfilled all righteousness that you actively obeyed the law of God fulfilling all those laws requirements that in your death you were demonstrated your passive obedience all on behalf of your people obeying God perfectly for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you. We thank you that you underwent such great temptation. We thank you and we praise you that you conquered so great temptation that you might demonstrate yourself to be the one true, the only Savior, the one the one alone by whom men may be saved. Oh, give us greater faith, we pray, Forgive us of our sins and lead us to deeper repentance. Conform us more and more to that image of Christ to which we ought to be conformed, so that we may glorify and honor you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.